Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Robert Yeager and the Tao Foundation. This is where we live on Connecticut Public Radio. I'm Lucy Malbethanchel. Do you remember your first reaction to telehealth? Maybe you were on the fence about a remote video chat with your doctor or another medical provider versus an in-person visit. Now, during the pandemic, telehealth usage surged and the data show better patient outcomes. There's also interest from patients that the option to see providers remotely continues. Today, where we live, we talk about virtual healthcare and find out how it has proven to improve patient health, allows care to be more equitable and accessible, and helps to reduce costs. Coming up, we learn about specialties that have adapted well to telehealth visits, from dermatology to psychiatry, and we want to hear from you, too. What's your telehealth experience? You can join us, 888-720-9677. That's 888-720-WNPR. You can share a comment on our Facebook page, or find us on Twitter at Where We Live. Our first guest joins us via Zoom, Dr. Pamela Hoffman, Medical Director of Telehealth Services at Yale Medicine, Yale New Haven Health. Dr. Hoffman, welcome to the show. Hi, good morning. Thank you for having me. So I mentioned telehealth usage surging, especially during the height of the pandemic. But what does it look like now, demand at Yale for telehealth visits? Well, you know, the demand is still there because the patient preference is still there. Before the pandemic, we were doing telehealth and we would average around 30 to 50 visits, maybe in a day or in a month even. And when the pandemic hit in March, we hit between three and 5,000 visits a day. And we're still hitting around two to 3,000 visits a day, which means people still want to do this. They still want to use telehealth and they're still using it pretty effectively. Now, when you had to make the switch uh, from 30 to 50 a day to three to 5,000, um, what kind of platform did you use? How quickly were you able to make that shift? Well, I joke because I, I joined uh, Yale to, to help with telehealth, and this was my five-year plan that became a one-week plan. In one <laughs> week's time, we were able to stand up ambulatory telehealth for all departments at Yale New Haven Health System and Yale Medicine. Uh, so it was about one very, very busy, very exciting week uh, of time in March. So describe a telehealth visit for a patient uh, that um, uses a, a Yale uh, service, uh, you know, how they interact with their doctor or provider. Sure. Well, you know, we have a couple of different systems, but in an ideal world, it actually starts even before the visit. If you've never done a telehealth visit, we have someone on our tag team call you up a day or two before to make sure that you have the technology working on your phone or on your device so that you can connect appropriately with your with your clinician. So that might mean checking if you have your iPad, if you have the computer, if you have the Zoom application, which is what we now use to be able to access this, and the MyChart, that's the patient portal that 
we use to be able to connect with your provider. All of that gets done even before the visit. Then on the day of the visit, you uh, potentially could even have an MA or a, um, a virtual rooming assistant could even reach out in the beginning of the visit, check your vitals, just like they would do in an in-person visit, someone coming in, checking on you, making sure you're okay, and then preparing you for the doctor's visit itself. Um, and then of course, the clinician comes on to the, the Zoom, uh, handles the uh, the situation and gets you on your way with whatever recommendations you all have. So how does the physician balance uh, the telehealth visits uh, versus, uh, you know, potentially, you know, in-person visits as well? Or do you have different teams uh, handling the telehealth? It's a great question. There's been a lot of research on this, and we've attempted to, to try to encourage uh, workflow blocking. So for a period of time during a day, a clinician is mainly doing telehealth visits as opposed to um, mainly doing in-person visits. It really allows us to better use our infrastructure here at Yale and also to better um, make more efficient use of time. That being said, some clinicians actually prefer the flexibility of being able to switch from an in-person visit that just ended to a telehealth visit for a patient who's a no-show. We now have a system where if a patient no-shows to their appointment and it's a couple of minutes later, we can reach out to them and see if they want to trans uh, uh, tr transfer or convert that to a video visit instead. So I've got to ask, we've all had the experience of we're on time for our visit at the doctor's office, but they're behind schedule. So with telehealth, when you say efficient use of time, are these appointments happening on time? And you know how, how long are these visits typically? Well, it's a it's a good question. I think it changes by department. I'm in psychiatry, and so my visits are usually a little longer than some others. Um, but I can tell you that uh, the the wait time and that worry about waiting by yourself on a Zoom screen has actually been a big barrier that we've been attempting to um, to to fix. We also have that virtual rooming assistant or that MA come on because it's so um, disconcerting to be in a waiting room um, is one thing, but to be on a Zoom room all by yourself waiting for the doctor is really uh it, it's it's really confusing uh and, and frustrating to a, a lot of patients so we've been doing a lot of different things to try to improve that that part of care you're hearing dr pamela hoffman here on where we live medical director of telehealth services at yale medicine yale new haven health as we talk about telehealth usage we'd love to hear what your experience has been our number 888-720-9677 or find us on facebook and twitter at where we live i understand that yale dermatology is experiencing a high volume of televisits and you're going to launch a service called asynchronous telehealth can you tell us more Yes, our dermatology department is really excited to try to access uh, a different form of telehealth. Now, typically what everyone's used to is synchronous telehealth, and that is live interactive video audio communication in real time. What dermatology really wants to be able to do is transition that a little bit to um, a picture, a photo, an image being sent at a different time to be evaluated and have recommendations sent at a different time back to the patient. It allows for a little more flexibility and a little more opportunities to access different providers that you might not have the time to see in their schedule and your own. So snapping a picture of a mole that a patient would like to see a provider take a look at to make sure if there should be any follow-up visits. 
Exactly. A rash, a mole, something unusual that you're seeing that you knew that you always needed to go over to dermatology, but maybe never really found the time to make an appointment. This kind of asynchronous visit would allow you to say, I'd really like to, to get the recommendation of a dermatologist and be able to send that um, right to them. And then they, the, our dermatology department, can look at these at their time and maybe when they have a, a canceled uh, appointment or a little bit of extra time in their schedule and really be more efficient about all the patients who need care. And so how are insurance companies responding to telehealth, specifically when we're talking about reimbursement for asynchronous telehealth, Dr. Hoffman? I can tell you that is the number one barrier that has kept this from going live earlier. Uh, so we know that reimbursement for telehealth had... Um, had really surged in the pandemic due to a lot of restrictions uh, that were lifted uh, because of the public health emergency. And what we're trying to do now is negotiate and work with payers so that it's in a contract where they can and, and are expected to pay for the care for the patients that, that we see, no matter how we end up seeing them. If it's effective and if it works for the patients, um, shouldn't it be paid for by insurance? <laughs> yes. <laughs> now, when we think about uh, telehealth and how it's transforming inpatient care, you launched a hospital at home model. I wonder if you can tell us more about that. Oh, I'm so excited to talk about our hospital at home model. We've gone live in two different hospital systems here at uh, Yale New Haven Health System. And what the goal is in hospital at home is to allow a patient who has a serious medical issue that would otherwise be treated in the hospital uh, to be able to be treated in the comfort of their home, their own homes. They would be able to have nurses visit. They could even order food so that they can have nutritious food that they'd be getting in the hospital, but they're getting that care from home. A doctor is, is providing virtual care throughout the day and they're, they're being followed just as if they were in the hospital. Can you give us an example um, when you mentioned someone that has a more serious condition and how this model works at home? Sure. Yeah, so far we have treated pneumonia, COVID, COPD, heart failure, cellulitis, acute kidney injury. So someone's coming in with a cellulitis that's a really significant pain in, in their body. And it's an infection that sometimes actually needs to be treated by pretty high dose antibiotics. Instead of being sent into the hospital and being away from your loved ones, being away from your pets, being away from all the things that keep you uh, in comfort. If you live within 25 miles of New Haven, you can actually go in the home, a nurse will visit you twice a day, and um, the providers will see you over video. You'll have vital signs taken, just like you're, you're doing in the hospital, only you'll be able to be in your own bed. And what are the conversations like with patients? This is something that they respond to well versus, you know, thinking about the traditional sense of going to an office or to the hospital for care. I will say that the feedback has been extremely positive from all the participants. Uh, everybody's really just grateful that they can have more of a say over how their care is um, is given. I mentioned your medical director of telehealth services. I understand you also do patient consultations 100% virtually. Uh, tell us how that's been working. Oh, yes. So I'm a child psychiatrist by training, and um, I work in the children's emergency department, which if any of you are familiar with how children's mental health is going in this country right now, we've been pretty busy over the past two years, um, and my work has been completely virtual. I see the children as they board in our emergency room awaiting psychiatric inpatient beds. Mm. 
Wow. And so when we think about yeah the wait times uh, for care, this is a way uh, to make sure that there's some interaction uh, for those who may need uh, to be hospitalized. Absolutely. You know, I will say that in the past, uh, I've been working in the children's emergency department in various hospitals um, for almost a decade now. Um, and I will say these are the longest wait times that I've ever seen. It's it's quite unprecedented. And so my goal is really to even start treatment in the emergency room. We start medications when we never would have done so in the past. We start actual um, clinical work here in the emergency department because we have to. So what is that like to have a consult with a, you know, a child or a teenager to, to make a diagnosis or you know, even offer counseling when you're, you're having this conversation via a video chat? You know, it's interesting. I know people were really worried about how people were going to respond, especially children, to telehealth. And I will say everyone. So far, each of the kids that get the uh, the tablet with me, they are pressing, they're, they're pressing the buttons, they're finding the emojis, and they're talking to me. They're talking to me just like they would talk if I were in the room with them. And that's really important because there are plenty of kids who wouldn't talk to me in the room as they're waiting an inpatient hospitalization anyway. And those kids, surprise, surprise, they're not really ready to talk to me on tablet either. So it's not really a shift in the care. It's just a shift in that delivery of it. And when we think about you know, how other uh, physicians are using telehealth, uh, especially for those who have uh, chronic conditions, I guess I'm thinking about cardiologists and helping patients manage you know, blood pressure or cardiac conditions. How does that work through telehealth care? Well, I'm really proud of our cardiology department. We have had a couple of new pilot programs go up because it's not just about the video visit for patients with hypertension, high blood pressure, where their blood pressure needs to be monitored. We've been integrating a remote patient monitoring, or RPM, that what that's uh, the acronym that you might see floating around. And the idea behind it is that we can monitor the vitals and the blood pressure virtually and it goes directly from the blood pressure cuff in a patient's home through their uh, smart device uh, right into the electronic health record. And what can you tell us about the outcomes? Uh, it's it's really positive. I can tell you we have had um, slightly less participation uh, just due to uh, volume and getting everybody on. Um, but other hospitals around the country have shown that this really does improve not just outcomes for um, for blood pressure monitoring, which means people are checking their blood pressure more regularly, but they're also making additional lifestyle changes because it's not just that you need to check your blood pressure. It's realizing to a patient that this is an important part of their health and well-being, and it changes uh, other things as well. So it does improve outcomes. When we think about wait times for um, anybody to access care, uh, whether it's a, a regular appointment or if something pops up and, you know, they give their their PCP a call and, you know, there may not be a, an appointment available. I'm just wondering how many more patients does Yale see because of this expansion in telehealth? How do you quantify that? Oh, well, you know, we have amazing data analysts here at Yale, and we started looking at different outcomes. And one of those outcomes that we've been measuring is the number of new people, new patients to our health system that, that arrived into our health system via a video visit or telehealth. And what we found over the past few months is that it is, uh, we've gotten an about over 200 new patients per month um, who have arrived into our health system via telehealth. 
This is where we live. Today we're talking about telehealth and how usage has grown since the pandemic began. My guest, Dr. Pamela Hoffman, Medical Director of Telehealth Services at Yale Medicine, Yale New Haven Health. We want to hear about your experiences with telehealth. You can join us, 888-720-9677, or find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. Now, Dr. Hoffman, you know, given the Supreme Court's Dobbs decision, I'm wondering how Yale OBGYNs are using telehealth to either prescribe birth control pills, or even abortion medication? Well, we are lucky here in Connecticut that that is less of an issue for our state. Um, I can tell you that telehealth regulations are really state-specific. The pandemic and the public health emergency has relaxed some of those rules. But at the end of the day, our OBGYNs are always, uh, they're actually really positively using telehealth, both for um, prenatal care over video, postnatal care, right, when you have a newborn um, over video, and then helping uh, to take care for women's health throughout the, the their life cycle. Um, there, there are a lot of restrictions for, for providers to be able to treat a patient. For example, a provider needs to be licensed in the state where the patient is located at the time of service. So if there's a provider who needs um, a abortion treatment or uh, reproductive care, they could cross over the border into Connecticut, and then our Connecticut license can allow us to treat them, even if they're not from here, even if they don't live here technically, if they're in our state, we can certainly treat them. And some providers have gotten licenses for other states so that we can treat them uh, where they are. That's interesting. So our providers, when you said they're getting licenses in other states to treat uh, patients where they are, is that something that's been encouraged through Yale? We've actually started a big push to allow for uh, Florida to be our first state to encourage our providers to get telehealth licensure in. And the reason for it is Florida has a beautiful law where they allow for a telehealth license, a telehealth only license. It says you provider are not going to open up a, a, a shingle here in Florida, but you're going to treat your patients when they happen to be in our state. It's a free license. It requires um, a verification with the state in which you currently have full licensure, and it allows us to treat our patients when they're, let's say, snowboarding uh, down in South Florida for, for this winter. For another perspective, joining us on Zoom is Dr. Lisa Pereira, Chief Medical Director of the Women's Centers, uh, providing abortion care in several states. One of its centers is Hartford Gynecology Center. Dr. Pereira, welcome to our show. Hi, good morning. Thanks for having me. So I'd love to hear about how the Women's Centers uh, is, is handling and, you know, abortion care and any kind of follow-up uh, for your patients. Are you encouraging your physicians or APRNs or nurse midwives to get licenses to practice in other states post-Roe? Yeah, I will say that many people and clinicians that provide abortion care want to be able to continue to provide that care and make abortion accessible to patients. And telehealth is a phenomenal way to make abortion accessible. Therefore, I personally am licensed in Pennsylvania, New Jersey, um, Ohio, and uh, soon to be Connecticut and um, Georgia, because that's where we have centers. Um, and just like Dr. Hoffman said, if the patient is located in a state that abortion is legal and I am licensed in that state, I can now, because of um, some rules that um, have minimized some of the burdens with regard to medication abortion, I can now mail those pills to that patient in the state 
I am licensed, the state that she lives in, mm -hmm. and where abortion is legal. But for the states that are have uh, more restrictive abortion laws, uh, that's where this kind of ability is limited? That is absolutely correct. Um, for those that aren't aware of what the Dobbs decision did, there are mm -hmm. essentially 26 states where abortion is now either immediately illegal or soon to be illegal. And that doesn't change the fact that patients will need access to abortion care. Abortion has been around forever and will continue to be around forever. Therefore, patients can travel to a state where it's legal, whichever the state that is closest to them. And if the provider is licensed in that state, they can provide abortion care. So I, as a provider at Hartford Gynecology Center, could care for a patient in New Jersey um, because that's the state that they're in if they travel to New Jersey from, for instance, mm -hmm. Alabama. Um, because we're talking about telehealth today, you know, I'm wondering what you've seen in terms of demand for telemonitoring when we're talking about uh, medication abortion, this two-pill regimen. Yeah, sure. So um, many of the centers since the Dobbs decision um, have begun implementation of telehealth medication abortion platforms. It was a little tricky initially because the, the Food and Drug Administration used to require the meds to be given on site by patients. So there was never really a need for telemedicine because the regulations required the patient to come for a visit. With the COVID pandemic, the, that restriction was removed and um, now we're able to, to mail the medications. So many centers are increasing their telehealth. What I will say is that the follow-up for medical abortion during the pandemic went entirely to telehealth for most, most, most healthcare facilities. Right. And when we talk about medication abortion, that's up to 11 weeks. And so this can be self-managed by patients. Absolutely. Medication abortion is incredibly safe. 99% safety and efficacy. Um, when you ask what patients are doing in the states where abortion is banned, many patients are not even um, going to their local healthcare providers. They're ordering medications on the internet and self-managing abortions. And honestly, they, there's, there's no contraindication to doing that because these medicines are so safe and so easy to use. Um, it is perfectly acceptable for a patient to self-manage their abortion. They just need to know where they should go if they need the help of a healthcare provider. Again, that's Dr. Lisa Pereira, Chief Medical Director of the Women's Centers. Again, one of its centers is Hartford Gynecology Center. Thank you so much for explaining that to us. We appreciate it, Dr. Pereira. No problem. Thank you. You're listening to Where We Live on Connecticut Public Radio. I'm Lucy Nalbethanchel. Staying with us is Dr. Pamela Hoffman. And after the break, we're going to learn more about how telehealth is used by specialists, including in psychiatry. What questions do you have? Later, we'll talk about patient privacy and who's protecting the data used through telehealth. We also want to hear about your telehealth experience. You can join us, 888-720-9677. That's 888-720-WMPR, or find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live.
Support for this podcast comes from Hartford HealthCare. Elevating Health is funded by Hartford HealthCare. ECMO is a leading-edge, life-saving treatment for patients with cardiac or respiratory failure. Dr. Jason Gluck, director of the Mechanical Circulatory Support Program and Emergency Cardiac Care at Hartford Hospital, explains what it is. So ECMO stands for extracorporeal membrane oxygenation, outside the body oxygenation of blood. It's a life support technique that's used by highly sophisticated medical systems for patients with severe heart or lung failure. The technique involves removing blood from the body, oxygening it, and then returning it back. ECMO procedures happen in the ICU, but not all hospitals are equipped with the necessary technology and staff. Dr. Gluck describes Hartford Hospital's ECMO Go Team. So ECMO is considered when treatments have failed, and in our center, with a special ECMO on the go team, we'll actually take that technology to their hospital and help them out there if they need to to stabilize the patient and then bring them back to heart for recovery. For more information, go to ctpublic.org slash health. This is where we live on Connecticut Public Radio. I'm Lucy Nalbethanchel. Telehealth has become popular among both privately insured patients and those covered through Medicare. That's according to Kaiser Family Foundation, which studied data showing rapid escalation during the COVID-19 pandemic. Between 2019 and 2020, the number of telehealth visits among traditional Medicare users increased 63-fold. Now, outcomes also have shown telehealth visits reduce costs, improve health outcomes for patients, and provide better access to care. So what will it take for the U.S. healthcare system to adopt a strong telehealth-driven system? We're talking about that today and learning how telehealth is used in care from dermatology to psychiatry. What questions do you have and what's been your telehealth experience? You can join us. Kathy tweeted, telehealth has made my life easier. I don't have to leave work, drive to an appointment, find and pay for parking. That's for sure. You can join us too. 888-720-9677. That's 888-720-WNPR. Again, find us on Facebook and Twitter at where we live. With us on Zoom, Dr. Pamela Hoffman, Medical Director of Telehealth Services at Yale Medicine, Yale New Haven Health. And joining us now is Dr. Neha Jain, Director of Telehealth Services in the Department of Psychiatry at UConn Health. Dr. Jane, welcome back to the show. Hi, Lucy. Good to be here. So I'm curious again, before COVID started, what telehealth visits looked like at UConn Psychiatry versus now? Um, well, the before is pretty easy uh, because it was very close to zero. So I can tell you we had about three telehealth regular visits in our department at the time, uh, two of which were conducted by me because I was very interested in implementing telehealth, especially to improve access to care. And then during the pandemic, just like Dr. Hoffman described, you know, that one Halcyon week in March, we went from zero to 98%. But what's really been interesting is that now when we are quote unquote post pandemic and have been open to in-person visits for more than a year, we're still at about 70% telehealth visits. Mm. And so tell me about that. Um, when we think about, um, obviously, the shift that needed to happen during the height of the pandemic, what are you hearing from patients, you know, the 7 out of 10 who still prefer telehealth to in-person? Yes, and that's been really interesting. We've actually conducted um, a telehealth survey um, for the past year. We've collected about 800 responses from our patients um, including both younger and older adults. And the vast majority of those responses, I would, you know, about more than 90% are extremely positive. Uh, from my own personal experience, I can tell you that I offer both in-person and Zoom visits um, to all patients at checkout. 
And what I most commonly hear from people who adopt telehealth or who prefer telehealth is primarily access, so transportation, right? Um, if you're a working parent, um, childcare, um, if you have half an hour during your lunch break for a doctor's visit versus taking an hour and a half to drive, find parking, see your doctor, and then drive back. Uh, my older patients, I'm a geriatric psychiatrist, mm -hmm. so people who are wheelchair bound or have multiple medical issues, uh, my patients with dementia, you know, for whom getting out uh, to, for a doctor's visit is a big deal involving a lot of other people. So, so many people find telehealth visits a lot more convenient, and they're the ones who, who tend to choose telehealth. And what are your visits like in terms of the time you spend with patients? Is it the same uh, telehealth versus in-person? The time that um, I as a clinician spend with my patients is the same. However, I do think that it is utilized differently uh, because a lot of the extraneous stuff, for example, in our, in our older adult clinic, the time that is sometimes taken up by the rooming of the patient, right? Um, so somebody brings them in, checks their vitals, brings them into the room, um, and then goes, you know, reviews their medications and they wait for us. Um, most of that time is gone. Um, you know, if somebody is late for an appointment and we have 20 visits, uh, 20 minutes left, and now we can spend those 20 minutes because as soon as I log on to Zoom, I'm right there with the patient. So there is less wasted time, and I feel like that allows us to be more efficient. And you said you specialize in geriatric psychiatry, and so I'm wondering, you know, how comfortable your parent, your patients are, rather, with you know whether they're using a smartphone or a tablet to speak to uh, their clinician. Yes, and and this was another big thing that initially came up, where people would say to me, you know, but your patients, and I'm here to tell your listeners that older adults are, you know, just as capable and just as interested in uh, doing a telehealth visit and obviously for multiple reasons sometimes find it even more convenient um, than a face-to-face -face visit um, you know there are technological challenges sure but that's nothing that can't be overcome with education dr hoffman talked about you know providing some additional support in terms of their comfort with technology maybe some education maybe some training but we have found very similar usages in telehealth between our younger and older patients Mm. And when we think about um, the barriers to access to care, you know, we might take for granted, we think everybody has a smartphone or a tablet, but for those patients who may not have those devices, or as you mentioned, maybe broadband uh, is not as strong, there's some issue with connection, you know, how do you help uh, get those patients on board if they have an interest in telehealth? That's a great point. So first thing I want to point out is that we think of telehealth as video visits, uh, but that's not really the case. You know, telehealth also includes audio visits um, or simply put a phone call. Um, and so we have continued to utilize uh, phone calls to a much, much greater extent. Uh, we also have some interesting data from uh, you know, the Department of Human and Health Services that shows um, that actually uh, people who are lower income, who are disadvantaged, who may not have access uh, to high-speed broadband, um, still utilize high levels of telehealth, and that's mostly audio visits. Uh, so we do rely on audio visits a lot because, again, if the choice is between not being able to see a, a patient and then being able to see them over a phone call, that's still much preferable. 
I'd love to hear from Dr. Pamela Hoffman at Yale in terms of, you know, um, access to devices and broadband. Do you find that um, there are still people who, want, who prefer or are able to use the audio version of telehealth versus the video? So I would say that it's not often that the patient prefers audio only to video. It's usually like Dr. Jane says that they don't have the alternative. And so while audio is better than nothing, we, we do believe that video audio combined is the best possible scenario for a telehealth visit. And the, the, the government really agreed with us. So during the pandemic, uh, because they knew that the telehealth was, was climbing and they were showing more and more disparity gaps uh, with people who didn't have access to broadband and access to these services, they were being left behind. They allowed for telehealth uh, to include telephone only and to be paid at parity as, as if it were a, a video visit. Um, and what we found was it was good. It was good enough and it got people the care that they needed. And it could be better. And so the FCC is looking at how we can improve that. And Yale was awarded a grant to try to look at just that. We're working on a, a grant to try to increase broadband services to patients in uh, disadvantaged areas to see if this would further improve their access to be able to uh, reach out for uh, both audio, video, and, and telehealth services. Mm -hmm. It's important to help expand uh, with broadband. I'm curious, would the, would the hospital system even be interested in, in helping get the devices into the hands of, of patients? And, and, you know, what are some of the challenges there? So I, I, oh, go ahead, Dr. Hoffman. I will say that the VA has done an incredible job at getting devices into the hands of veterans for exactly that reason. Mm -hmm. Dr. Jane. Um, I was going to add to that point, um, I should make a plug, especially on this program, for um, the CMS Affordable Connectivity Program. Uh, so the CMS has just launched this program, I believe, which allows for low-income families to apply for assistance uh, with everything from getting a discount on devices as well as um, paying lower rates for broadband access. Um, and I believe um, there are multiple ways to qualify with income levels if you're a family with a child that is eligible um, for the lunch program in school, then you're, uh, you're likely also to be eligible for this program. Mm, that's good to know. And when you say CMS, Centers for Medicaid Services, is that that's what it stands for? Okay, perfect. Again, you're hearing Dr. Neha Jain, Director of Telehealth Services in the Department of Psychiatry at UConn Health. Also with us, Dr. Pamela Hoffman, Medical Director of Telehealth Services at Yale Medicine, Yale New Haven Health. As we talk about telehealth usage, you can join us, 888-720-9677. We're also talking about outcome. We'd love to hear about your experience as well. Find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. Dr. Jane, I had mentioned earlier, uh, we had talked with Dr. Hoffman about the child mental health crisis and wait times and emergency departments. I'm wondering in terms of the patients that you work with, you and your colleagues, have you seen also a reduction in ER visits? We have certainly seen reduction in ER visits because one of the patterns, uh, we haven't collected data on this at UConn Health as far as I know, uh, but if you think about, uh, we know from research what leads to an ER visit, um, and especially in psychiatry, we, we see this pattern of people being unable to access care 
um, you know, they lose a doctor, they move farther away, uh, they run out of medications. Um, and those are typically events that lead to then um, decompensation in an ER visit. And these are the things that we have been able to prevent by increasing that access, much like Dr. Hoffman said, you know, now if we have a patient who no shows, we simply pick up the phone and call them and offer them uh, an audio or a video visit. And that really allows us uh, to provide better coverage for our patients. Right. And in terms of uh, how insurers are responding to the telehealth visits at UConn and with reimbursement, how does that look? Um, so far, so good. So we do have parity currently in the state of Connecticut, uh, which means that telehealth visits are required to be reimbursed, um, you know, at same rates as a face-to-face -face visit. Um, we are also, you know, they're still providing coverage for audio services. That is likely to change in the future. I just hope that, you know, it continues to change in a positive direction. And Dr. Jane, I'm wondering if you can maybe share an example um, when we talk about how this improves patient care outcomes. Can you give us an example of what you and your colleagues have seen? Oh, so many stories, Lucy. Um, so a very simple one, as, as a geriatric psychiatrist, again, right, obviously, you know, in the beginning of the pandemic, um, the most vulnerable population was our older adults. And so most of the facilities, long-term care facilities, nursing homes uh, were in complete shutdown and our patients were locked in. You know, they couldn't see their family, they couldn't see their clinicians and many, many older adults declined because of this. Uh, and so we were still able to do video visits with them. And I very clearly remember doing a video visit in, in mid 2020 uh, with a long-term patient. I was working from home. My trainee, our geriatric psychiatry fellow, was working from home. The patient was at her facility with a nurse, uh, you know, who was able to provide us the information. And then two of the patient's children, both at separate coasts, were also on the same Zoom call. So it was five of six of us in five different locations. And she was just so happy to see us and her family was so grateful for a chance to talk to the whole team and you know by the end of that visit I think we were all just so moved and so grateful for the technology that allowed us to do this. Brian from Hamden has a call for our guest. Brian go ahead. Oh good morning. Um, I just wanted to know if uh, Ms. Albatanza you could have your guest acknowledge some of the limitations of telehealth when it comes to patients facing uh, acute crises, even those that they may not necessarily acknowledge at the time, PEC situations, that kind of thing. All right. Good question, Brian. Uh, Dr. Jane, do you want to take that one first? Absolutely. And, and that's a very, very good point, Brian. Again, I can speak to my field. You know, in psychiatry, uh, safety is often a big concern. Um, and there is this uh, very real and valid fear um, I think amongst both clinicians as well as patients as to, you know, uh, what if there is an acute situation and the patient is not there with you um, and they're at their home or, or somewhere else and what would you do? And so there are certain things we have put in place for that. Uh, for example, for every video visit or every telehealth visit, you know, we confirm the patient's location, we confirm where they are, we confirm that, you know, is there somebody with them? Um, and so in case of an emergency, uh, we still try to get crisis services out there as quickly as possible. Uh, but that is always a, a concern that has to be addressed. 
You're hearing Dr. Neha Jain, Director of Telehealth Services in the Department of Psychiatry at UConn Health. Dr. Pamela Hoffman is also with us, Medical Director of Telehealth Services at Yale Medicine, Yale New Haven Health. As we talk more about telehealth usage, we wanted to learn more about how medical providers and insurers are protecting patient data when using telehealth. More after a break, you can join us too. Find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. This is where we live on Connecticut Public Radio. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. Today, we're talking about telehealth, the usage growing, the benefits, um, maybe some limitations as well. But how are medical providers and insurers protecting patient data when using telehealth? For more, joining us now on Zoom, Bob Shaput, Executive Chairman of Clearwater, a firm that manages cyber risk for healthcare companies. Bob's also a faculty member at Quinnipiac University. Welcome to our show. Well, thank you very much. It's a pleasure to be here. So when we talk about large hospital systems, are they doing enough to protect patient data on telehealth platforms, Bob? Well, I'm really optimistic about <laughs> the changes we've seen over the last decade or so. We had a, a, a veritable blitzkrieg of implementation of new technology as a result of the uh, so-called High Tech Act back in 2009 with incentives provided to large health systems as well as uh, eligible providers, physicians themselves. And uh, unfortunately, at the beginning of that blitzkrieg, there was a, a fair amount of uh, damn the torpedoes, uh, throw caution to the wind. Not a lot of attention was being paid to cyber risk management and cybersecurity issues. But again, I'm encouraged because of the changes I've seen over the last several years. When we think about hospital systems and the money involved when uh, something happens like a ransomware attack, you know, is this forcing hospital systems to think about this, Bob? Well, it, it certainly is. And that's part of what I'm encouraged about. Um, we've gone through an evolution. I'll say uh, circa 2009, before the High Tech Act was passed, for those organizations that paid attention to this, they thought of it as a HIPAA compliance issue. And uh, then we fast forward a little bit for, uh, further to 2015. I, I dubbed that the year of the mega breaches. We had uh, Anthem and uh, Excellus and Primera, 178 million records impermissibly disclosed. Then around circa 2018, there became a realization that we're now implanting in our patients or attaching to our patients devices that are connected to the internet, to wireless networks, and ultimately to the internet. And now um, I'll say sadly, we're at a stage where it has become a medical professional <clears throat> liability issue, uh, as well as a personal liability for members of boards of trustees of these uh, large hospitals and health systems. As a result of that, the good news is that there's been a great awakening. Uh, the board is getting more engaged, the C-suite is getting more engaged. And, uh, and yes, along in the course of events, those very costly ransomware attacks uh, have certainly uh, served to garner attention of the executives and boards as well. 
There was that story out of, I believe, Alabama in 2021, uh, CBS News and others reporting a woman suing a hospital after her nine-month-old died, um, claiming it did not disclose the hospital, rather, that its computer systems had been crippled by a cyber attack, which she claims resulted in diminished care that resulted in the baby's death. Uh, when that ransomware attack happened, the failure of electronic devices, meaning a doctor could not properly monitor the child's condition during delivery. Again, that child dying uh, after being in an intensive care unit for several months. What was your reaction uh, to that, that story, Bob? Well, um, two reactions. One, I was very sad. It prompted me to uh, write a blog post that I called a tragic call to arms. Uh, secondarily, I was not surprised. Uh, I have been speaking about the potential for a cyber-driven medical malpractice lawsuit for a number of years now. Uh, this is not a medical malpractice lawsuit. <clears throat> Indeed, it's a negligent homicide lawsuit. Mm -hmm. And if you uh, peel back the uh, covers a little bit and look further into it, yes, you're absolutely correct. Uh, very critical fetal monitoring systems, the electronic health record system, important communication systems were down. And this individual uh, who delivered the baby was not informed. Um, the, the complaint itself cites over nine times the failure of the organization to undertake risk assessment and risk analysis work to truly understand what its exposures were. And the upshot is having failed to do that, they were vulnerable to this kind of attack. In this case, it was a ransomware attack. You're hearing Bob Chaput again here on Where We Live, Executive Chairman of Clearwater, a firm that manages cyber risk for healthcare companies, also a faculty member at Quinnipiac University. So we think of what, what HIPAA covers in, in relation to patient records that a medical provider or insurance company may hold. But what about all these third-party apps and protections there? Yes, that's, a, that's an interesting phenomenon that I characterize as a lot of individually identifiable health information, IIHI, that may or may not be, in this case, it doesn't turn out to be PHI, protected health information, hmm. slips through the cracks. And as a consequence of that, it becomes incumbent upon the uh, healthcare providers, the hospitals, the health systems, the integrated delivery networks that engages, if they indeed engage with these third-party providers, to ensure and receive from them satisfactory assurances that they've taken all reasonable and appropriate measures to safeguard the sensitive information. If on the other hand, we're talking about, let's say the, uh, the health app on my iPhone, where I am the individual who is managing that information, well, that's not covered by HIPAA. That slips through the cracks. If someone hacks in my iPhone and accesses that information, that's on me. So the, the burden of responsibility really falls on the covered entities in HIPAA parlance, that is those large health systems, the insurers and clearinghouses. It's incumbent upon those organizations who engage with hire those third-party app providers to receive those appropriate assurances from them. They, in circumstances where those third-party app providers are deemed to be HIPAA business associates, they certainly have obligations under the regulations as well 
But um, it starts at the top with the uh, upstream covered entities, if you will. Dr. Pamela Hoffman still with us, Medical Director of, of Yale Medicine, Yale New Haven Health, Telehealth Services. Dr. Hoffman, I'm wondering if you could respond to how you know, Yale's thinking about protecting uh, patient privacy, given all that Bob has shared. Yes, we've been um, thinking about patient privacy and we have some incredible security officers who work with the telehealth team to ensure not only that our telehealth video visits are kept um, private and, and protected and secure, but we're also thinking about uh, about that when we look into RPM, remote patient monitoring, because at the end of the day, frequently you're using a third party application to be able to access the blood pressure readings uh, from that cuff into your uh, smartphone or device. We have worked with specific uh, third-party um, applications who we know uh, we've entered into our BAA, our business associate agreements, because we know that they are taking patient security and data privacy seriously. And that's our way of trying to protect uh, our patients as best as we can. I think that the 21st Century Cures Act has changed as well how we think about data, how we think about patients' information, and the ability for a patient to be able to access their information is equally as important. We need to keep their information safe so that they can access it if they want it. And that's what we're working on here here at Yale and, and Yale New Haven Health System. Has there been any data breaches through Yale New Haven Health that learning lessons uh, in the past uh, few years? Well, I can tell you that we've had several emails uh, because there were attempts um, at, a, at attacks uh, and they've been on high alert. I believe we've been on high alert for the past two years uh, because we've had known threats. Um, they have changed a lot of the security permissions. If you're on a hospital computer, there are there are many fewer things you cannot do because we need to protect patient privacy more than we need to check on what is this clinic available. So there are times that I might be looking for an outpatient clinic for a patient. Um, and because I'm on the hospital system, I can't access that website. It's done for the patient's privacy. It's done to make sure that we are kept secure. And if I have to do a little bit more or look in a different way, that's meant to, to really uh, it reminds me every day that I am protecting patient privacy and security first and foremost. We got an email from a listener, David, who writes, uh, in July, the Uniform Law Commission just drafted and approved the Uniform Telehealth Act uh, that David writes, Connecticut should consider enacting to enhance telehealth in Connecticut. Thank you for that information. But I want to thank our guests. We're out of time uh, for this uh, conversation. Of course, Dr. Pamela Hoffman again with Yale Medicine, Yale New Haven Health. Thank you, Dr. Hoffman. Thanks for having me. Also, Dr. Neha Jain, Director of Telepsychiatry Services at, at UConn Health. Dr. Jain, thank you. Always good to be here, Lizzie. And Bob Shaput, uh, again, Executive Chairman of Clearwater, a firm that manages cyber risk for healthcare companies. You've given us a lot to think about. Bob, thank you for your time as well. It's my pleasure. Thank you. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. Today's show, produced by Sujata Srinivasan. We'll be back tomorrow.